You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute the Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive into three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this, you will be smarter when you arrive at your destination. On this edition of Commute. We all struggle with how to teach our children responsibility, but what if a toy could do it for us while also putting them through a kind of traumatic experience? In 1997, a man named Akihiro Yokoi did just that by introducing the world to a device called the Tamagotchi. Recently, ESPN aired a high school football game. It was supposed to be between two high school national powers, IMG Academy and Bishop Sycamore. IMG Academy, though, blew out Bishop Sycamore. But wait a second. Is Bishop Sycamore even a real school? So wait, you're telling me that I get to watch as many movies in theaters as I want for $10 a month? What's the catch? If it sounds too good to be true, it's because, well, it was. We discuss the quick rise and even quicker fall of MoviePass. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, at any point in your life growing up, probably in the mid to late 90s, did you ever own a device called a Tamagotchi? So I was a little late to the Tamagotchi game. So everybody had already had one for like a year, and I got one from Santa Claus in my stocking. But it wasn't a Tamagotchi. It was a Yoda. So it was like a Star Wars version of of the Tamagotchi. So basically, what I'm trying to say is it was a knockoff version of the Tamagotchi. Yeah, I don't know what your end goal there is. Like, did Yoda transform into anything, or did he evolve, or you just had to just take care of him? Yeah, he didn't do anything. He didn't, like, have a lightsaber. There was no mission to it. He just pooped and and needed to be fed. And Baby Yoda, I just want to say, Baby Yoda makes a big mess. (laughs) He was a messy Tamagotchi. (laughs) So, Dave, we both have kids, and uh, we have a lot of experience with kids' toys, and we know how fast the novelty of a kid's toy wears off. But now imagine a toy that demands a kid's full, constant attention. And imagine if they were trained like one of Pavlov's dogs to respond every time the toy beeps at them. This obviously sounds awful as a parent, right? But from a toy company's (laughs) perspective, you may have struck gold, and... This is the story of the Tamagotchi, a tiny egg-shaped device that allows a kid to control the fate of a small creature living in a virtual kennel. If the user feeds it, plays with it, and gives it attention, it would evolve into a really cool, interesting creature. If the user did not clean up the digital poop or feed it or give it attention, the creature would die in a very harsh lesson in mortality for such a young mind. Remember the context here. It's 1997. The iPhone is still nearly 10 years away. Personal computers aren't the staple of every household. And AI was not everywhere. The creators of the Tamagotchi, Akihiro Yukoi and Aki Mayata, at the time are executives of the Wiz Company, a toy company in Japan. And the legend goes that the idea came from a commercial in which a small boy wants to bring his turtle on vacation but can't. Yukoi himself was a lover of animals, and he believed that a small screen device the size of a wristwatch in which the user emulated the responsibility of pet ownership would be successful. 
But Yokoi wanted to embody the feeling of real-life pet ownership, the reality that pets are not always all fun all the time. This meant that the creature would sleep at night, beep when it needed something like food, it would also need discipline if it stepped out of line, and medicine if it was sick. Neglecting the pet led to the ultimate consequence, a death of a creature in which a ghost would hover over a tombstone for dramatic effect. In the mind of Yukoi, you can't feel real responsibility without anything less than that. So Tamagotchi got its name from tamago, which is the Japanese word for egg, and tachi, which is taken from the English word for watch. The device was made very portable, a small keychain with only three buttons, so the Tamagotchi could easily be cared for on the go. The success of the game came from the ultimate goal of evolving your blob-like creature into a more interesting and unique one, a goal that kids latched onto. But seeing your pet cross the rainbow bridge to the great beyond was kind of a negative incentive to stay on top of your game at all times. So the product hit shelves in Japan in November of 1996, and it took less than a year for 10 million units to be sold. Parents camped out in front of toy stores during a busy Christmas season, and production was ramped up to meet demand to 3 million Tamagotchi a month. When the company offered a free Tamagotchi to anyone who owned at least 1,000 shares of its stock, stock values rose by 60 yen the next day, about a four times increase. The appeal even extended to adults. Japanese businessmen who were attending to their virtual pets were known to cancel meetings and get in auto accidents. (laughs) In May of 1997, the product appeared in America, and by mid-June, three and a half million units were sold. Many parents saw it as a way to teach responsibility. But the issue here, though, is that of those three buttons, none of them paused the simulation. The device required near constant attention. The devices drove teachers across the nation insane as they were banned at school. Many kids faced impossible choices about the fate of their virtual creatures. If, the, if a user loses a pet, that pet could never return. Rebooting the game would put a new creature in the care of a user. And many parents reported that their kids felt depression and anxiety trying to keep the creature alive. Eventually, Dave, the Tamagotchi was eclipsed by a new surging trend, the Furby, another lifelike toy creature, which parents preferred since they didn't have to worry about it dropping dead. Ultimately, Tamagotchi sold 82 million total units and, in a way, paved the way for a world in which our devices constantly beep in our pockets and demand our attention 24 hours a day, rewarding us when we interact with them. The responsibility factor here, which it seems like would be a turnoff, was actually the appeal of the device, even when the possibility of trauma was mixed in. So I got a Furby way later than Furby was popular. So I was like, I don't know. When Furby was popular, I was a little kid. But you got a knock Furby, it was called no, like no, a no. Derby or no, something. This, this was a real Furby, but this is when nobody wanted Furbies, so there were tons of Furbies. And so we went to this, my friend and I thought it'd be really funny to get a Furby when we were like 13, 14 years old. So we got one and we're laughing. We think it's super funny. We have it for a couple of days. Maybe day three or day four, it started talking because it needed to eat at 3 a.m. And I kid you not, I opened up my window. And I threw the Furby out into a busy road, shut the window, went to sleep, and never thought about it again. I I can't believe that you didn't even feel like an ounce of empathy. Like, I know it's a machine, but you're a kid. You know, if you're a kid, it's like, ah, but... Like, what if it comes alive, though? What if it is alive? What's the statute of limitations on, on that kind of thing? Jeff. 
Jay, recently a school named Bishop Sycamore lost a football game. And actually calling it a loss is an insult to all other losses because Bishop Sycamore got destroyed by perennial high school powerhouse IMG Academy. But Jay, here's the thing. Bishop Sycamore doesn't really exist. But before I get too far down this road, Bishop Sycamore, in theory, would be what's considered a prep school. So you are an educator, you're a teacher. How do you feel about prep schools in general? So I don't really know a whole lot about prep schools. Um, From what I do know, just working in a public school system, I know that we have to follow a lot of guidelines from a lot of different levels, uh, especially at the state level about what we can teach and what we can fund and all that. And there's all kinds of rules about special education and, and everything. It's very detailed. But from what I understand about a prep school, there's not really that level of oversight. So they're more driven by some sort of skill. Well, typically prep schools, regardless of the academic side, are really good at sports. Bishop Sycamore, on the other hand, lost to IMG 58 to nothing. And Jay, what makes this story even more bizarre, okay, is that the IMG Bishop Sycamore game was aired on the worldwide leader in sports, ESPN. So how did a supposed fake school weasel its way into a cable television game on the world's largest sports network? Well, Jay, here's the thing. Liars, typically, and good liars, have been lying for a while. So let's start with Bishop Sycamore head coach, a man named Roy Johnson. Johnson's from Columbus, Ohio, and before Bishop Sycamore, which coincidentally has the initials BS, wink, wink, he ran another fake team from another fake school called Christians of Faith Academy. Christians of Faith Academy had more problems than we have time to list, but here's a Cliff Notes version according to reporting from The Athletic. Highlights include a broken relationship with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a church that had originally planned to help fund the creation of the school, and a 2018 lawsuit against Coach Johnson by First Merchants Bank for negligent repayment of $100,000 on a loan. The first signs of the Faith Academy school that wasn't was the football team. The team tried to schedule games against some of the best high school teams in the country, but always asked for travel payments to be paid up front before the game, which is very fishy, and so nearly all of those games got canceled, including a matchup with IMG Academy, the team from last week's ESPN matchup. This happened in 2018. Okay, so fast forward a few years, Faith Academy changed its name to Bishop Sycamore. The coaching staff at IMG, the powerhouse, turned over. COVID caused some cancellations within the high school football season. And the two teams, Bishop Sycamore and IMG, actually played last year in 2020. It was a 56-6 IMG win that no one noticed because it wasn't on ESPN. Fast forward to now. And because most teams don't want to play a high school all-star team like IMG, Bishop Sycamore somehow was in the right place at the right time for the second consecutive year to cash in. And Jay, add to the weirdness, Bishop Sycamore played a non-scheduled football game two days before this matchup against IMG. 
And while Coach Johnson, more on him in a minute, claims that Sycamore actually has two teams, the same team played both games. The Athletic discovered video footage that showed players from the game against IMG playing in the game two days before. Jay, a deep dive into the roster of Bishop Sycamore, and this gets back to the prep school model of that prep school's supposedly give guys a better path to Division I opportunities. You find that the roster at Bishop Sycamore actually is not made up of future Division I athletes like it pretends to be. Instead, the roster at Bishop Sycamore consists of a mixture of high school players and postgraduate men, people out of high school, with little to no opportunity to play anywhere outside of playing for Bishop Sycamore. And Jay, the team has been a punching bag for years. They show up, they get destroyed, and then they go home. In 2020, for example, Bishop Sycamore went 0-6 and was outscored 227-42. to While Andre Peterson, the supposed founder and director of Bishop Sycamore, stands by the legitimacy of the school, he hasn't done much as of this recording to prove that the school is legit. There's nothing that I've gotten out of this that would constitute it as a scam because I'm not gaining anything financially from what we're doing, Peterson told USA Today Sports. The reality of it is that I have a son that's also in the football program and has been in the program for four years. If it's a scam and the kids are not going to school and are not doing what they're supposed to do, then I'm literally scamming myself. I think the best evidence, though, Jay, at the fraudulent nature of the school can be found on one of the school recruitment pages, Max Preps. So Max Preps is a widely respected recruitment site for powerhouse high school teams. The Max Preps page lists the school's address as 303 South Grant Avenue in Columbus, Ohio, a.k.a. the address of the Franklin University Library. The address that the school gave the Ohio Department of Education in 2020, well, a quick Google search attaches that address to a rec center. And Jay, when it comes to the ESPN blunder, they blame the booking agency that they use to help them find high school games for a national audience. And Bishop Sycamore, well, they've responded to the scandal by firing Coach Roy Johnson over the last couple of days. I'm just confused as to, like, the why here. Like, what's the end goal to just get a bunch of guys together who want to play football and give them the opportunity to play football? Like, what's the deal? Like, what's the what's the point if they're not going to school in the first place? This Like, I had seen the headline of this story, and then you told me that you were going to talk about it, so I didn't read anything about it. And I'm glad that you uh, you did this segment because it kind of gave me the chance to explore this. But at the same time now, I'm just so much more confused as to the goal of these people and what they're trying to accomplish here. Sometimes on Commute, we don't give you all the answers. We just want you to be in the know. So 
So Dave will conclude this episode of Commute by exploring a listener-submitted topic. Our buddy Britt Arcatapane gave us this topic, and I'm glad he did because I thought I knew the full story of this, and I absolutely did not. So we're going to be talking about MoviePass. Do you remember anything about MoviePass? It was a big story a couple years ago. I do remember MoviePass. September 14th, 2019, the theater subscription service movie pass officially ended its two-year run a legendary end that nearly everyone saw coming because the service offered its subscribers a movie ticket a day to any theater across any market for less than ten dollars a month virtually ensuring that the service would spend more money than it brought in the idea was that MoviePass would buy up movie tickets and then give them to subscribers, but the initial hope was that most subscribers wouldn't use the service regularly. Like gyms like Planet Fitness, for example, run on a similar type of model. But as it turns out, people very much like going to the movies more than they like going to the gym, and MoviePass began losing money rapidly on nearly every subscriber. To understand what happened here, though, It's best to first understand the firm that owned the majority share of the company, Helios and Matheson. The chairman and CEO of the firm, Ted Farnsworth, is sort of this larger-than-life personality who has been involved in everything from a psychic hotline service to vitamins and energy drinks. Uh, He's been sued numerous times, and according to the Miami Herald, he has registered more than 50 companies in the last 30 years, the majority of which have collapsed. In 2017, Farnsworth set his sights on acquiring MoviePass with the intention of reinventing the business. Farnsworth had visions of creating an advertising business based on the movies the users chose to see and learning their habits and mining their data. MoviePass also hoped to get a cut of ticket money as they drove more and more people into the theater. The struggling MoviePass at the time was currently priced at $50 a month, a far cry from the $10 that Farnsworth would propose. So the goal here, Dave, was not to make money from the subscription itself. They knew that they were going to lose money on most of their base. But the goal was to build a huge loyal base that they could then leverage into more business opportunities. MoviePass began playing hardball with AMC and others in an attempt to create revenue-sharing deals. AMC went to war with MoviePass and threatened to sue and even block MoviePass subscribers from its theaters. From MoviePass's perspective, they're trying to sell a beneficial relationship here. Moviegoers will buy more concessions if they go into a movie that they believe they got for free, right? A 2018 analytics firm actually claimed that MoviePass increased AMC's yearly concession stand sales by as much as 81%, according to Nick Stat at The Verge. MoviePass even thought bigger than that, though. They would run deals with the restaurant you eat at before the movie, the Uber ride you take to get there. But the issue here is that it all collapses when AMC refuses to play ball with MoviePass. AMC even announced an alternative to MoviePass, and the 3 million MoviePass subscribers began to bleed the company dry. 
Public relations nightmares followed as the MoviePass software gave issues to users across the country. Restrictions emerged for the unlimited plan. The stock tanked. The stock was even kicked off the NASDAQ. And class action lawsuits emerged against MoviePass. And MoviePass only had one option at this point, and it was the only thing they could not do. They had to raise their price. And in the end, the company shut down for weeks to save money, promising to return, but never did. And MoviePass failed for so many reasons. Uh, It was easily emulated by theater chains, for one. The leadership couldn't really offer anything to the consumer other than a discount. And at the end of the day, the company was selling someone else's product, not their own. MoviePass wanted to force itself to be the middleman between the producer and the consumer. Farnsworth stepped down as CEO of Helios and Matheson after contributing to the company, losing more than half a billion dollars in two years. And MoviePass stands as a testament to arrogance, perhaps a cautionary tale in a way. All this talk about MoviePass and watching movies in an unlimited way and uh, yada, yada, yada makes me think about something that you and I have talked about before. The story that came out a couple of years ago about a woman who set a record by watching the movie B-Movie 357 times in one year. Um, And so I've always thought that that was really funny, and how in the world could somebody do that? Well, it's not funny, it's psychotic. It's psychotic, but stay with me here. So you have kids, I have a kid, and I've now watched certain movies... I don't know if it's hundreds of times yet, but I've watched them a lot. And so the lady that watched B-Movie 357 times claims that it was because it was the only movie that her son could watch without crying. I kind of get it now. 357 times. So I think her name's Gemma Chalmers. Gemma, if you are listening, I'm sure you are. I'm sorry. Gemma, come on to the podcast and defend your choices. And that's it. I'm about to go boot up B-Movie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons, and a big thanks to Britt Arcatapane for submitting a topic for this week's commute. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We will see you next week.